I'm Lee Rowland. From the ACLU, welcome to At Liberty, the podcast where we discuss the most pressing civil rights and civil liberties topics of our time. Today, voting rights in the midterms. We are on the cusp of a consequential midterm election, and all eyes will soon be on the results. In the lead-up to Election Day, voting rights advocates have been working furiously to ensure that result will be the product of a free and fair election. To get us as close as we can to a nationwide election where everyone eligible to vote can vote, and that everyone who does vote casts a ballot that counts. Today, we're delighted to welcome Dale Ho, director of the ACLU's Voting Rights Project, back into the studio. Dale is one of these guardians of democracy working behind the scenes to make sure that your vote counts. He's here to give us the latest on the state of the vote, and he'll walk us through the biggest voting rights challenges and successes playing out in these midterms. Dale, thank you so much for coming back to talk to us. Thank you so much. We're sitting here less than a week out from the elections. Are we going to see a free and fair midterm election? Well, we definitely have more controversies at the last minute with respect to voter access uh, this year than in any election that I can remember with perhaps the exception of the 2012 election when really this whole wave of activity trying to make registration harder, trying to cut back on early voting, trying to make it harder to vote on election day, really began. That period, 2011, 2012, saw more than two dozen restrictions on voting enacted before the presidential election. And, you know, I remember that time, and I remember it being a mad scramble. I mean, you were there too, Lisa. You know what it was like. Uh, The last two elections since then, 2014 and 2016, Uh, were obviously not without controversy. There was a lot of stuff happening in those elections, too. Most of the laws that we were challenging during that period were things that were enacted around the time of the 2012 election. What's really unique here in 2018 is that we're seeing what feels to me like a new wave of activity, and as a result, more last-minute emergency-related election litigation than I can remember. Wow. But when I look at 2018, it's remarkable for the amount of enthusiasm and energy, particularly for a midterm election. I mean, you're seeing early voting rates in some states that are on par with or surpassing even 2016, which was a presidential election. So that in and of itself is really remarkable. It's a testament to how energized the electorate is. And that's, I think, a very good sign for the vibrancy of our democracy. But on the other hand, we are seeing more controversies about voter access than I've seen in at least six years. Let's talk about some of the controversies. What are the states or the races that voting rights advocates really have their eyes on right now? Well, what I think is really interesting, and maybe it shouldn't be surprising, is that if you look at a heat map of where these controversies are happening and you juxtapose it with a map of where are there competitive statewide contests at the top of the ticket, whether for Senate, states that are seen as pivotal to control of the Senate, or uh, states that have closely contested gubernatorial elections, there's almost a perfect match. 
right? So you see states like Arizona seeing last minute litigation over laws that prohibited people from returning an absentee ballot for anyone other than a member of their immediate family. We had a case and a settlement about the state's compliance with the federal motor voter law. You look at a state like Missouri, where there have been two cases ongoing about first the voter ID law and the affidavit that people have to sign if they don't have ID. Um, And then our case about the level of public education that the state is doing about the ID law to make sure that voters know what they have to bring with them to the polls and what the options are if they don't have one of the forms of ID that the law requires. North Dakota, very closely contested Senate race there. And The new voter ID law, which prohibits people from using an ID that doesn't have a residential address on it, which has a tremendous impact on Native American communities because people who live on reservations frequently don't have residential street addresses and their IDs reflect that absence of a a residential address. States like Georgia, states like Florida, these are all states with very close Senate or gubernatorial races. And I don't think it's an, uh, an accident or a coincidence that these controversies are happening where the elections are close. I think the people who want to restrict voting rights know they get more bang for their buck in terms of potentially trying to tilt the outcome of an election if they pass these laws where the elections are tight. You mentioned that you hadn't seen this number of restrictions since 2012. That's not that many years ago. It sounds like this is a a somewhat recent phenomenon, at least the way you put it. Why now? Why in the last 10 years have repressive voting tactics become a partisan election tool? It really is in the last 10 years because after the 1992 and 1996 elections, when Clinton won, it's not like the Republicans suddenly turned towards restricting voting rights. When Bush won in 2000 and 2004, the Democrats didn't do that. This really became— And and they had some hanging chads they might (laughs) have had reason to be angry about, Uh, Yeah, I mean, you know, look, the losers of elections are always going to complain about things. But Florida was quite the meltdown. And— I mean, we're still dealing with the aftermath of that as the machines that we purchased after the 2000 election are now on the fritz and aging out. And you're seeing these reports in places like Texas where they're actually switching votes. I mean, I don't know about you, but like, you know, if if you have an iPad that's more than like three years old, that thing kind of stops working, right? I mean, this technology is like 15 years old at this point. So we're seeing some problems. But your question about why are we seeing this over the last decade, um, the 2008 election The results there were a manifestation of the demographic changes that the country is undergoing. You had young people turning out at a higher rate than they had since 1992. You had people of color as more than a quarter of the eligible electorate for the first time in our nation's history. We elect our nation's first black president. And then suddenly we hear the problem isn't we don't have enough turnout. It's we have too much. We have too many people getting into elections. We have cheating going on. It's there's fraud and there's something illegitimate about that result, and we need to cut back on voter access. And then suddenly you see this wave of laws before the 2012 election, more than two dozen, that make either registration or the act of casting a ballot harder. And that's what we've been contending with ever since. This used to not be so much of a partisan issue. It's not that Democrats and Republicans agreed on voting rights. There were, of course, many things that they disagreed on. But one basic principle there was a consensus about was that democracy is better served when more people participate. And that consensus has, unfortunately, since the 2008 election, that has broken down. Have you seen anyone in favor of the kind of measure that would shrink the electorate back to these old days actually be 
honest about that? That is, are there people who are saying, we just have too many people voting? I mean, you do see that from time to time. You know, uh, there's a guy, a commentator on um, Fox Business, John Stossel, who said quite explicitly around the time of the 2012 election, you know, we don't want more people to vote. People say young people should vote. Well, we don't want young people to vote. Young people don't know anything. They don't know what's good for them. So they shouldn't be voting in as large uh, numbers as everyone else. And you go back to the early 80s even, and you hear, I think for the first time in the sort of modern conservative movement, this notion that, you know, good government groups are not in lockstep with conservative goals because they favor more participation. But we really see it taking new and ugly shape, I think, in the last decade. So for those of us who do think a healthy democracy depends on as much of our electorate voting as possible and being able to vote as possible, what are voting rights advocates doing? What are activists on the ground doing to push back against some of these barriers? So you mentioned, for example, North Dakota. The Supreme Court blessed this voter ID law that is known to have dramatic negative impacts on Native Americans in particular who don't have traditional residential addresses for the polls. Is that it? Is that the ballgame? Does that mean that Native American voters are going to be disenfranchised systematically in North Dakota? Not at all. I mean, the litigation is just one piece of the puzzle. And while it's been unsuccessful for purposes of the 2018 election. And I should note, you know, the the, the litigators who were working on this did a tremendous job and, you know, kept this law from being enforced in the 2016 election. But, you know, we're only one part of the puzzle. Um, And activists on the ground are doing a lot to try to make sure that Native American voters are aware of what the requirements are and the tribes themselves are doing incredible work printing new IDs for people so that they can go to the polls and have the forms of identification that North Dakota requires under law. So assigning residential addresses really just in the last week before the election. Because if you go to a reservation, a lot of people, their homes don't have street address numbers and names. Not at all. Um, You have to get those things assigned even before you can even print the ID right now. Um, So it's a a tremendous lift. I'm not going to say that all is well and everything is going to be fixed, but the people on the ground are really doing heroic, heroic work to try to make sure that as many people um, who want to participate can. The New York Times had a remarkable story about exactly that, where uh, it really stuck in my mind. They said that one of the tribes had a printer to print up these new residence cards that physically melted from the speed at which they were running new ID cards for residents. Get those people a new printer. (laughs) Yes. Somebody out there, they're looking for you. So what about these other states? What about Arizona that wasn't informing voters about their registration options? What about the lack of public education in Missouri? Are, Are there voting rights activists stepping into the breach to make sure that people know about this in advance of Tuesday's vote? I mean, we're doing what we can at the ACLU. With respect to Arizona, you know, we found really serious problems with the state's noncompliance with the federal motor voter law. This is something that flies under the radar. What we saw in Arizona and in Missouri, just simple noncompliance with federal law requiring you to provide voter registration services doesn't get much attention and has a tremendous impact. So in Arizona— Can I ask, you said motor voter. So when you say provide these registration opportunities, that means at the DMV, right, when you go get your license or something? More than that. We use motor voter for short because the National Voter Registration Act, which it's a reference to— 
it's most famous for voter registration at DMVs, but it also requires voter registration services be provided at public assistance offices. So in Arizona, for example, um, we discovered that Arizona was failing to do that. We were able to settle that issue without a lawsuit and require, under the terms of that settlement agreement, Arizona is required to inform about 280,000 public assistance recipients who didn't receive voter registration services that they failed to do so and gave them voter registration forms. So that was great. We got that solved, at least in terms of getting those people registration forms before the voter registration deadline. We found another problem in Arizona, which unfortunately we weren't able to fix, and it's that people who were changing their address at the DMV weren't having their addresses updated for voter registration purposes. The state's supposed to do that under the National Voter Registration Act. They weren't doing it. According to the state's own representations, that affected over 300,000 people uh, who had changed their addresses at the DMV. Um, The state wasn't willing to settle with us on that issue. We had to go to court, and the court unfortunately denied any relief before the election, said it was just too late. Um, So we'll continue to litigate that issue after the election, but unfortunately there are 300,000 people who changed their their driver's license information at the DMV in Arizona whose uh, voter registrations may be out of date. You mentioned in your list of states to watch uh, both Georgia and Kansas. Yes. It's my understanding that in Georgia and Kansas, in both states, the current secretary of state is running for another statewide position. Governor That's correct. In both states. That's correct. In that situation, as the current secretary of state in those respective states, do they still have the constitutional duty of overseeing and certifying that election? And is that common? So in both states, uh, the secretary of state's running for governor, as you know, Brian Kemp in Georgia, Chris Kobach in Kansas, and in both states, they are overseeing the elections. Particularly in Georgia, Brian Kemp has said that he will not recuse himself from any aspect of the elections process, including if there's a recount over his gubernatorial race. Wow. Um, It's pretty remarkable. I mean, I think most Americans would, if you were watching, you know, the World Series last week, and Dave Roberts, the manager of the Dodgers, were calling balls and strikes behind home plate. I think most people would probably say that's probably not the optimal system for the World Series, right? But for some reason, we let this happen with our elections and um, our democracy. So it's not a good practice. Most of the countries in the world that have democracies have nonpartisan election administration, not administered by candidates overseeing their own elections. That's probably the best practice. Uh, Unfortunately, it's uh, relatively common here in the States. Are you worried that in either of those states that the fact that the Secretary of State is in charge of those elections could end up with an invalid result? Does it affect, if nothing else, the perception that those are free and fair elections? Well, I think it obviously affects the perception. How could it not? Right. But, you know, I'm not going to say that anyone in particular uh, has violated particular rules to inure to their own advantage, but it's hard not to imagine that when you're the secretary of state and you have to make some judgment calls about when registration should be deemed valid, when voters should be purged, which votes should be counted, that your own self-interest is not going to play a factor into that. I mean, you look at Kansas, the gubernatorial primary there was decided by fewer than 400 votes. There were a lot of questions about what was happening in terms of election administration there. Absentee ballots 
that were perceived to have a signature mismatch, for example, more than 100 of those were rejected in Johnson County, which was a stronghold of Chris Kobach's opponent, the sitting governor, Governor Collier. The Johnson County election administrator was appointed by Chris Kobach. Meanwhile, in Sedgwick County, the second largest county in Kansas after Johnson County, which was a Kobach stronghold, not a single ballot was rejected on that basis. And again, the elections commissioner there was appointed by Kobach. In Georgia, you know, we have the, I mean, it's remarkable. There's audio of the Secretary of State, Brian Kemp, running for governor saying that uh, he's concerned that everyone in the state might exercise their right to vote. That's almost a direct quote from him. And then so when you see the wide range of measures that he's engaged in, purging voters for not voting for a few elections, putting applications in suspense if there's a single typo in the person's registration application, like a, like a misplaced hyphen or something like that, um, one letter missing so that there's not an exact match between that person's registration and their DMV records, rejecting absentee ballots for a perceived signature mismatch, which is something that we sued over, without giving voters necessarily notice and an opportunity to contest the rejection of their ballots. It's hard to see something like that and not think to yourself that that's a candidate trying to structure the rules of the election in a way that he thinks is going to inure to his own benefit. Sure. And it's hard to see those as administrative accidents when the guy's on tape saying, you know, our our electorate is worse when more people vote. He's saying the quiet part loud. He's saying he's concerned that more people are going to vote. And every action that he's taking on voter access is one that restricts access. Okay. So let's shift to a counterweight to that upsetting reality. In addition to voting rights affecting the outcome on the ballots, I know that voting rights themselves are actually on the ballot in a few states. Tell us where voters will get to weigh in on the expansion of voting rights themselves. Right. I think this election is remarkable not just for the number of controversies on voting rights, but in terms of the number of opportunities that voters have to enact pro-voter reforms. In fact, I don't think there's been a single election in recent history with more positive voter reform measures on the ballot that voters can choose uh, for themselves. And the ACLU is supporting five. First, there's the amendment to Florida's constitution that would restore voting rights to about 1.3 million people who have a conviction but have served all of the conditions of their sentence, including finishing their parole. They're back in our communities as co-workers, as parents of students in the same schools with everyone else. And They're just looking for a second chance to become full members of civic society. That could be the greatest single act of expanding the franchise of any act since the voting age was lowered to 18. And are you willing to say if you're optimistic about the outcome on that? I'm cautiously optimistic about this. This is something that has bipartisan support across the ideological spectrum. We've seen sheriffs come out in favor of it. We've seen uh, members of religious communities come out in favor of it in Florida. The polling has been consistently good. It's a heavy lift, though. Let's Mm -hmm. be honest. You need 60% of the electorate in order to amend the Constitution in Florida, and it's hard for 60% of the public to agree on anything. It's really something that at a moment where so much of the conversation is centered on restrictions on the right to vote, we're on the cusp of re-enfranchising 1.3-plus million people. It's, it's really a phoenix rising from the ashes kind of moment. It would be amazing. I mean, I don't think people understand the magnitude of this. 
Florida's just one of four states where if you commit a single felony, you're disenfranchised for life. Right. And it's one out of 10 adults in the state. One out of 10. Yeah. You know, I mean, literally the electorate's been decimated in Florida. Yeah. Uh, and I understand the this. racial impacts make those numbers even it, higher. It's staggering. For African Americans, it's more than 20%. It's almost 30% of African American men in the state. I mean, you know, social scientists say that voting is a communal act, that you're more likely to vote when members of your family, your community, your peer group vote. And when you think about what kind of effect that has, particularly in African-American communities, I mean, the depressive effect on civic participation reaches beyond those who are directly disenfranchised. Yeah, if one out of three black dads and uncles <clears throat> and cousins don't vote, that's birdshot through the community. I, I mean, assume. it's extremely disempowering, Yeah. right? You know, in addition to Florida, there's a ballot measure in Michigan, which would bring Michigan into the 21st century on voting. It encompasses a number of reforms, automatic registration, registration on election day, if you have the right paperwork, early voting, no excuse absentee voting, so you can vote by mail for any reason. Most states have one of these reforms. Michigan is in a small minority of states that has none of them. And it also has the longest advanced registration deadline in the country, 30 days, Oof. which I think most social scientists think is probably the single issue that depresses turnout mm -hmm. uh, when people can't register or update their registrations just as the campaign's getting hot and is getting a lot of media attention. Right. Michigan was obviously the closest state in the 2016 presidential contest. It was decided by about 10,000 votes. The vote by mail and election day registration components of the reform package by themselves each could be expected to increase turnout by maybe 200,000 votes. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about a massive, massive change in Michigan. And one other thing that I think is great about this, too, is that people are sometimes worried about hacking and interfering, tampering with the results of elections. Well, one way to make sure that that doesn't happen is to double check after the election and conduct an audit. Um, most states don't do this. It's pretty remarkable. It is. And then just briefly, three other measures that the ACLU is supporting, one on nonpartisan redistricting in Utah, one on automatic voter registration in Nevada, and one on election day registration in Maryland. I'll give you another chance to say that state. Nevada? Did you mean Nevada, <laughs> Dale? Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I, um, I didn't mean Nevada. I meant Nevada. There you go. Totally uh, different um, state. I think people mostly understand where early voting is, same-day registration. It's right there in the title. But can you explain for folks who may not understand exactly what it means in practical terms, what is automatic registration and what does it look like in practice? Automatic registration means that when you interact with the state, say at the DMV, and you provide your information, you're going to be automatically registered to vote unless you say, I don't want to be registered to vote today. It creates an opt-out system. What we have today in most places is a, an opt-in system. You know, you go and you get your driver's license, and then you have to take an additional step. And it might not sound like That is much. if people remind you that step if is there. are right. complying with the motor voter law, which Arizona and Missouri weren't. But um, that difference, opt-in versus opt-out, it actually makes a huge, huge difference in terms of the number of people who end up registering to Absolutely. vote. I mean, look, you go to the DMV, you're there for hours. You want to get in and out of there Sir, as quickly as possible. Sir, do you want to just do one more bit of paperwork? Yeah. Um, but just generally speaking, opt-out systems generally uh, produce a lot more participation than opt-in systems. And Oregon was the first state 
to do this. They adopted the first automatic registration system in the country, and they saw the largest, I think, if I remember correctly, increase in voter participation between the 2012 and 2016 elections. Pretty remarkable given that I don't think they're particularly competitive elections in Oregon in 2016. So, you know, it just seems like if there's a simple reform that would also bring us in line with most Western democracies where the burden of registration is on the government rather than on the individual. It just makes sense. Yeah. It also keeps our registration rules up to date. I mean, people who talk about election security say, we don't want dead people voting. We don't want um, people who've moved voting and things like that. Well, if we had a system where government records were automatically connected to voter registration systems and updated in something close to real time, as real time as the government can get it, right. um, that would get us closer both to improving access and also making sure that the roles are up to date and we don't have these out-of-date registrations that I know that some people on the right are concerned about. And there's about. precedent for this, right? I mean, one of the best arguments I've heard for automatic registration is basically the government does this with all men for the draft, right? For selective service, there, there's a constantly updated list. You don't hear about a lot of dead people getting their draft notifications, right? So right. this is something that can be done. It can be done. Now, I, you know, I do want to make clear that we think it's very important that uh, when you establish these systems, you make very clear to people what the eligibility requirements are. The last thing we want is for people who are ineligible, you know, because they're under 18 or because they're not citizens or because they're disqualified in their state because of a felony conviction or something like that to inadvertently end up on the rolls. There's one last thing I'd like to ask you about. Uh, even as you've been monitoring events across the country and trying yes. to help keep the vote for the midterm secure, you also are barreling towards a court trial next that's, week. That's right. I have a trial starting on Monday. About the census, right? Tell us about this trial. Sure. We have a case that's going to trial on Monday, November 5th, so the day before Election Day, in Manhattan. It is a challenge to the Trump administration's decision to include a, a question on citizenship in the 2020 census. That's something that we haven't seen since uh, 1950. Basically, what it will mean is a door-to-door -door government inquiry of the citizenship status of every member of every household in America. Um, it's something that the Census Bureau has vigorously opposed for decades under both Republican and Democratic administrations. Because the understanding is that if you have a question like that, particularly in today's climate, it's going to reduce the number of people who participate in the census. And if we don't have an accurate headcount, that will be incredibly problematic. Federal resources are distributed based on headcount and political representation, apportionment in Congress, seats in the House of Representatives, seats in state legislatures – are divided based on total population. And if you get an undercount, particularly of immigrant communities and other communities of color, as a result of this citizenship question, what it means is that those communities are going to be deprived of the federal resources and the representation to which they are entitled under the Constitution. I remember progressive advocates pushing for census officials to ask more information about, mm -hmm. for example, LGBT. BTQ individuals in the census, right. and that was thought as empowering to have more information about individuals. Why is citizenship different in your view? Well, citizenship is a sensitive question for a lot of people if you're not a citizen, particularly if you are an undocumented person. There's a lot of concern uh, in communities that if that information is asked of you from the government, um, it could be used against you 
later and be used as a basis for uh, removing you from the country. And it's not just non-citizens themselves. A lot of people live in mixed status households, and there's a concern that if there's one non-citizen in the household, maybe the household won't respond to the census. One thing we've learned from our litigation is that the Census Bureau itself predicts conservatively that if you have this question, it could mean a decline in census participation by close to 6% of households that have one non-citizen or more in the household. And if I heard you correctly, you just said the Census Bureau itself (laughs) estimates that kind of downturn. Why on earth would the Census Bureau have decided to include a question that it knew would be likely to reduce participation. Well, the Census Bureau didn't decide to do it. They were ordered to do it by the Secretary of Commerce, Wilbur Ross. What Wilbur Ross says is that in December of 2017, the Department of Justice asked the Census Bureau if they should uh, would be willing to include a citizenship question on the census because they need it to enforce the Voting Rights Act. Now, never mind the fact that since the Voting Rights Act was enacted in 1965, we haven't collected citizenship status from every household um, in this manner ever, and it's never hampered the Department of Justice's Voting Rights Act enforcement efforts. I mean, leave all of that aside. What we learned through the course of our litigation is that uh, Wilbur Ross, shortly after becoming Commerce Secretary in in the spring of 2017, immediately ordered his staff to start trying to find a way to add this question to the census. So he testified in Congress that the process was initiated by the Department of Justice in 2017, that his consideration of this issue was solely in response to the Department of Justice's request, that he had no communication with the White House about it. All of that was false. He was working on this months earlier, and he did so with the input and direction of Steve Bannon, who was then obviously the president's chief political advisor in the White House. Would it be fair to say this shows an intent to use the census not so much as a building block of democracy but as an enforcement tool? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, that's not totally clear. Okay. What is clear is that the rationale being put forth that we need this to enhance democracy is a pretext, that the opposite is the goal to undermine democracy, which depends upon a fair and accurate count of all communities, uh, adult and children, citizens, and non-citizens. That's what the Constitution calls for. There is an uglier concern, though, that people have raised and that, you know, at the start of this process, I kind of dismissed a little bit because, you know, we want people to participate in the census because we want to get an accurate count. But here's the thing. What the Department of Justice says is we need block-by-block information of the number of citizens on it. We need that to enforce the Voting Rights Act. We need to get that from the Department of Commerce and from the Census Bureau and to publish that information. So what the game plan here apparently is, is for every block in every community in America to state the proportion of citizens and non-citizens living on that block. Now, some blocks have a single family or even a single person on them. And it's not entirely clear to us how the Census Bureau is going to keep that information confidential as it's required to under law. So one of two things has to happen here. Either the Census Bureau has got to keep that information confidential, and in which case the Department of Justice is never going to get the information they claim that they wanted, which supposedly triggered this entire process, revealing that the whole thing is a sham. Right. Or they're going to publish that information, and then, you know, I, I think people's concerns, I understand them. Let's end on a practical note. Let's say uh, someone goes to vote 
either during early voting or on Tuesday and has a problem. They don't show up on the rolls. Any tips for folks out there about how to respond to any issues on Election Day to make sure that everyone possible can cast a ballot that counts? The first thing I would say is don't leave the polling place. Try to get the issue resolved there. If you're told that you're not on the rolls, don't leave and hope that you're going to make a phone call or get that thing resolved. Demand a ballot. Even if you're not on the rolls and you, you can't cast a regular ballot, you're entitled to a provisional ballot. And if you are, in fact, eligible and should have been on the books, but there was some kind of mistake, that ballot should be counted. Um, if you have a problem with your machine, don't just cast the vote and then hope it'll get sorted out. Later, once that vote is cast, it's going to be, I think, impossible to do something about which offices or which candidates you've selected. So try to get that issue sorted out. Try to get the help of the poll workers there. If you can't get an issue resolved immediately while you're there, the best thing you can do is call the National Election Protection Hotline, one our vote O-U-R-V-O-T-E. It's a, a, a program run by the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights that a lot of different organizations civil rights organizations and volunteer lawyers participate in, including ACLU lawyers and ACLU state affiliate lawyers. It's a hotline that can do intake on problems and try to get those problems resolved on election day. And are they able to take intake calls in languages besides English? Oh, yes. Great. Absolutely. Dale, thank you so much for giving us a snapshot of our voting rights in action. Um, And good luck at trial next week. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your favorite podcasts. We'll catch you on the other side of the midterms.